You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. As Joanna mentioned, we're beginning a new series today called How to Bounce Back. Given the, the recent events, there's, there's a lot of talk out there right now about how to bounce back. And there's a lot of advice being given. There's advice about how to bounce back as a business. There's advice about how to get your brain working at full capacity again. There are actual bounce back diets. There's bounce back travel planners with bounce back travel offers. So we're bouncing back. There's all kinds of bounce back stuff. Uh, I noticed recently John Hopkins put out a bounce back guide, and I was looking through it, and there's some helpful stuff in there, but probably the most interesting piece of advice was something they call yawn to smile. So here's what you do if you're feeling down, your mood is down, you yawn as big as you can. I guess you do your arms out as big as you can too, and then you finish by smiling for three seconds, and then you do this repeatedly for a minute. Now, I wanted to report on how this works, but I couldn't. I couldn't do it for a full minute. I mean, it's just too goofy. I kept trying to, and I just got laughing. So I I guess it kind of works because it's just so bizarre. So I thought it was maybe time to consider what Jesus has to say about bouncing back. Something beyond just the tips and the tricks that last for just a brief moment that we find out there right now. Jesus, of course, is the best bounce back expert to ever walk the planet. If you can bounce back from death, you can bounce back from pretty much anything. And three years before Jesus rose from the dead, he made a, uh, a public appearance. This wasn't his first public appearance, but it was the first big appearance where he kind of announced what he was planning to do and who he was. And this occurred in his hometown of Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem but had to escape with his parents to Egypt for two years and then was raised in Nazareth, which is in the north of Israel, quite a ways away from Bethlehem. So in Nazareth, everybody knew him. He was the son of the local carpenter there. The events of his birth in Bethlehem with the angels and the shepherds announcing who he was had either been long forgotten by this time because it had been 30 years or had maybe never been heard of in this town yet. Bethlehem, as I said, was a long ways from Nazareth and Jesus was now 30 years old. So imagine the shock at the weekly gathering in the synagogue when Jesus stood up. The public reading of Scripture was usually reserved for elders and rabbis. Jesus was neither of these. He was the son of a carpenter, as far as everyone knew. And so Jesus stood up, walked to the front, and he asked for the scroll of the book of Isaiah. And then when he'd been given the scroll, he began to look for the passage he wanted to read. Now, it was a scroll, not a book, so... It took some time probably to get to the chapter he was wanting to read because it was the 61st chapter in the scroll of Isaiah. But once Jesus found it, he looked up from the scroll and he read two verses. The scene that I'm describing is recorded in Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 21. Here's what we read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, what cannot be recorded because we don't have audio or video of this, is probably what was a very audible gasp 
whenever Jesus said that. Jesus had their attention because for 700 years, people had been waiting for the fulfillment of these very verses. Every year, they would wonder if this might be the year of the Lord's favor, as Isaiah prophesied. So everyone knew these verses, and everyone knew the verse that followed the ones that Jesus read. The following verse, verse 3, Isaiah 61, verse 3 in the Old Testament says this, To give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This is our theme verse for the Bounce Back series. This is what Jesus claimed that he could do. Now, this must have sounded incredible on that day when Jesus said this. This carpenter's son, who they'd seen grown up among them, is saying that he can do all of this. Absolutely impossible. I mean, of all people, a carpenter like Jesus should know that you can't build anything out of ashes, definitely not anything beautiful. Once wood has burned to ash, it's no longer useful for building purposes. And how could this man that they'd known since four turn a life from a downward spiral of grief into an upward spiral of joy? How could Jesus lift the spirit of heaviness and replace it with clothes that were fit for a celebration or a party? And what would Jesus know about planting seeds of righteousness that would grow into giant trees of righteousness? But this is exactly what Jesus came to do. Jesus introduced to us six bounce-back words in the New Testament. All of these six words start with the same prefix, R-E. The word or the prefix R-E in English means to go back. Whenever life takes a downward turn, our first instinct is to move away from the experience or move on past the experience as quickly as possible, to put it in the rearview mirror as far as we can and as quickly as we can. But Jesus says in these six words that actually the best way forward is to first go back and address something about the past that got you to this point. And this is why Jesus invites us, and he's, these are the, the words, repent, R-E, repent. We're going to look at that next week. He invites us to go back and look at any sin in our lives and confess it as a condition of bouncing back. Then he says we need to be reborn. What was dead in the past, he offers to give life in the future. And then, over time, Jesus says he will redeem our past. He will exchange it for something far better than the past. And then he tells us to be reconciled, and not just bounce back personally, but to reconcile with the relationships that he's placed around us. And then finally we get a chance to experience the joy that only he can bring. We get to rejoice. But it all begins with the RE word that we celebrated last Sunday, and we're going to look at it again today, and that is resurrection. This is where the power to bounce back actually originates or begins. Now, there are two parts to every bounce. There is the pre-bounce, the history, kind of the downward side, and then there's the post-bounce. That's the future. Both parts are critical in determining whether a particular downturn in your life will actually end up being a, a bounce of greater joy and greater growth or whether it will be a crash. 
The bottom of the bounce back V that God offers is marked by three items. There is an event, first of all. Then there is a word that describes the event. Then there is the ceremony that allows us to participate in the event. The event that makes this possible, as I said, is the resurrection. That's the event that we celebrated last Sunday. The word that describes what God was doing through that event is the word grace. God's grace is offered to us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The ceremony that marks our decision to accept God's grace is baptism. These are the three words that describe the bottom of that V. And all three of these are listed in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. So these are the four verses we're going to look through this morning. Let me read them to you. Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So grace is talked about, baptism is talked about, and the resurrection of Jesus is talked about. So this morning we're going to zoom in on the bottom of this V and look at both sides, the before and the after side. And the, the word resurrection describes the event that gives the power from God to affect our lives personally. Resurrection points to the history that we share and the future that Jesus offers. RE speaks to the history that is behind the downward pull in every life and throughout human history. Surrection, that part of the word resurrection, points to the power that we need from God to change. We'll look at both of these. First, the RE part. Our history requires mercy. Mercy from God. Our history has two constants. We keep on sinning and we keep on dying. That's the two themes of human history. Sin and death. More can be said, but those two are constant. Sin is the history behind every pile of ashes, every piece of destruction, whether it's visible or whether it's in a life. It's the driving force behind our heavy hearts. It's why we so often do what is wrong rather than what is right. The first sin was committed by Adam and Eve, and that event brought about what we now refer to as the fall the fall of humankind. Ever since then, the human experience has been a fight against the gravity of this downward pull, this downward moral pull, both inside of our hearts and in the circumstances that we face on the outside. And no matter how well we fight this downward pull, no one can escape where this eventually ends, and it ends in death, our own death. Now, the resurrection of Jesus was, first of all, a going back event. It started as a death, a crucifixion. Without that death, of course, there can be no resurrection. Without the downward direction of our life and of history, there can be no bounce. There can be no resurrection. Jesus died to address our common history, our sin. The death of Jesus made it possible for God's grace to forgive our sin. Now, on the pre-bounce side of the V, God's grace is applied as mercy for our sin. Mercy for our sin. Now, God's mercy is not God deciding to kind of let us go easy on the sin. 
That would be unjust. God's not just saying, you know what, never mind. It's okay. We all make mistakes. That's not God's mercy. Because God is just. And therefore, sin must be paid for. It demands justice. We all know that if we're sinned against, we demand justice. And God is the standard of justice. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He paid the price. He absorbed the consequences that our sin deserves. So he can offer us just mercy. Not just turn to blind eye mercy, not unjust mercy, but just mercy. So does that mean that our sin doesn't matter anymore if we are forgiven because of what Jesus did? If we accept that, does that mean it doesn't matter whether we sin or not? That actually was a question that a lot of early Christians had, and a lot of Christians still have now. And it's addressed in these first statements in Romans chapter 6. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? You know, if, if we sin more, then, then that only means more of God's grace is needed, and God's grace is good, so maybe it doesn't matter if we sin or not, because God's grace is going to increase to cover whatever sin we commit. The answer is pretty clear immediately, by no means. Why? Because we've died to sin. What does that mean? For those of you who have accepted God's grace through Jesus Christ, let me ask you, do you feel like you've died to sin? I don't. I mean, I'm still tempted. I still sin. I would honestly say I'm not even mostly dead to sin. I'm not even close to being dead to sin. So what does it mean? when it says we've died to sin. What changes when a person decides to give their lives to Jesus, follow him, and accept his grace? Well, God gave us a ceremony that paints a picture of this before and after reality. The ceremony is called baptism. This is a picture of a baptism that I got to be a part of in Ghana, Africa, uh, years ago. But this is like every baptism that I've seen. Someone is immersed into the water, and then they're brought back up out of the water. That act itself is a visual of both the death going into the water and the resurrection coming up out of the water of Jesus Christ. But when someone is baptized, there's more going on than just a kind of reenactment of the event of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's also a public declaration by that person that that death and that resurrection is now personal for them. They are attaching their lives to that person, Jesus, and that event, the resurrection. They're attaching their lives to that. So through baptism, a person is saying that they are now with Jesus. They are attached to him. But how can someone be with Jesus when he no longer walks the earth like he did 2,000 years ago? It's kind of the same way that I am with my wife, even though she's not standing on stage with me right now. I am with her, even when we're on the opposite sides of the world. Several years ago, my wife and I were going through security at John Wayne Airport, and um, she remembered that there was some liquid that she'd left in her carry-on that we were getting ready to go through screening with. And so I went over to her piece of luggage, and I grabbed it, put it up on the, the table, and kind of started opening up and digging through it, looking for the liquid. Well, this alerted the TSA agent, because all he saw was some guy getting out of line, grabbing some woman's luggage, and rifling through it. 
So appropriately, he asked me the question, or asked her the question, are you with him? And she simply said, yes. Now, that was a simple phrase, are you with him, and a simple one-word answer, yes, but it described something incredibly profound and incredibly deep, and it kept me from getting in trouble with the TSA at that point. <laughs> what it described is the fact that 37 years ago, my wife said yes to my marriage proposal and decided to attach her life to mine, and I did the same by attaching my life to hers. What that means is that our lives are now forever linked together. We've had two children. Now we have five grandchildren. Our financial future is tied up in each other. She has thrown her lot in with me, and I've thrown my lot in with her. Now, we have not spent those 37 years in the same room, obviously. But wherever we are, we are with each other. I didn't feel the need to explain all this to the TSA agent, but... Rebecca being with me is a big deal with, for me and for her, life-altering implications. And this is what it means when someone decides to be with Jesus. And baptism is the ceremony that declares that I'm with Jesus. The decision to attach your life to Christ has life-altering implications. It's best summarized by the word raised. We're raised with Christ. Your life and, and your future has a very different trajectory than it did before you decided to attach your life to Jesus. In a sense, in a much smaller way, it's, but it's kind of like what happened to me when I got married. The term that is often referred to is accurate for me. I married up. My marriage elevated my life. I attached my life to someone who elevated me. I could go on and on to describe the various ways, but I'll just simply say her quick mind and her sense of humor has been a blessing to me in ways that I find hard to describe. As we face the challenges of life, it is so helpful to be almost always laughing. And she provides that. And she provides really well thought through analysis of what's going on. So, and I know that I'm not the only one that's experienced this raising effect. Many of you have married up also. If you married into money, your net worth raised. My wife and I didn't marry into money, so, but we've heard of that, where your net worth, <laughs> net worth went up. Uh, if you married someone smarter than you, you make better decisions now. If you're not arrogant and will listen, you make smarter decisions. So being with Christ means that you, your life has been raised with him. My wife is great, but she's never risen from the grave great. She's not that great. Jesus did. Attaching your life to him elevates your life in ways that no other relationship can. That's why we don't just take the forgiveness and then go on sinning. That would be like getting married and then go on acting like a single. It would indicate you didn't understand the commitment you just made. We have died to sin. That doesn't mean there is no more temptation, but that, that means we've decided that we are going to put away sin. What that means is to be with Jesus means that our allegiances have changed now. 
We still struggle with sin, but we are now tied to him. Marriage is often referred to as being tied down. You know, usually if you get married and you have a bunch of single buddies, they'll remind you of this. You're getting tied down now. Your freedom's almost, almost over. Three more days, then you're tied down. And the truth is, you are tied down. But the deeper truth is, that's a really good thing. I mean, I'll speak for myself. My selfish heart needed to be tied down. I needed to learn how to love. I needed to learn how to sacrifice. Marriage was a huge learning for me in learning how to love. And then having kids, there's just is almost no chance to be selfish and have kids. I was tied down. And I couldn't figure out how to find five minutes for myself sometimes. And it was hard, but it was so good for me to be tied down. My selfish heart had a pull in a different direction now. I used to wake up in the morning and say, what do I want to do today, especially on the weekend? But then I would wake up and say, what, what do you want to do? <laughs> what are we going to do today? That's a whole different thought process to a selfish heart. And that's what happens when you decide to be with Christ. Being with Christ means that you are forgiven, but you are now tied to him. You can't just do your own thing without feeling the pull back to the one you love. Now, as in marriage, you can break your commitments, but it's going to cause tremendous pain in your heart. To be with Christ is to be tied down in the best possible way. That's what it means to die to sin. So that's the pre-bounce side, the history, the dealing with the sin side. Now the future, the surrection. Our future requires power. Okay, great. Our, 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 our past sin has been forgiven. We now have our hearts tied to Jesus Christ. We wake up on Monday and we're still the same person. Because although that event marks a tectonic shift in our hearts, we're still us. It's not magic. We still need to change. Now, we can all bounce back a little on our own power. You know, without Jesus, people bounce back from tragedy all the time. I'm not saying that you need to be a Christian to ever really bounce back. No, you see stories of people bouncing back all the time. Powered by natural human resiliency, they recover and they move on. And often they learn from it. But the question is, in what direction do they move on? Do they bounce? Jesus wants to turn our personal failures, our personal setbacks, our personal tragedies into a completely different person, a resurrection kind of bounce back. He wants to attach the V of his death and his resurrection to the V of your life. Surrection, this, this root of the word resurrection, comes from Latin and it means to surge or to rise. Sometimes we, you know, an insurrection is another way that this word is used. It's a rising of people within. The reason Jesus came was not just to forgive sins, but to change us, to elevate us. Now, if you ask most Christians to explain what the word grace means, they'll talk about the mercy of God and how it applies to the forgiveness of sins. And they're exactly right. 
But that's how God's grace applies to the past. The word grace, God's grace, has much bigger implications than just the forgiveness of sins. God's grace, when it's applied to the future, shows up in the form of power to change us so that over time we actually grow. We actually sin less. And this is not a passive process where we just sit back and watch the grace of God turn us into amazing people. No, it's not passive. We are actively involved, but so is God. It's very much like pedal assist on an electric bike. I don't know if you've ever done pedal assist on an electric bike. But the way it works is if you pedal, there's power. If you don't pedal, there's no power. If you're on an electric bike, you got the battery, you got the motor, you stop pedaling if you're in pedal assist mode, and you eventually glide to a stop. Because the bike, it's, it's, it's not going to go until you pedal it if you're in that mode. God's grace is kind of like pedal assist for the Christian. You know, if, if you don't put any effort, then God's grace has got nothing to partner with to help you go and help you move. It's as you put in effort that God's power begins to partner and move you. You know, my experience on a pedal assist bike is you, once, that, once you start pedaling, that power kicks in from the electric motor, and you can go farther and faster than you could on your own power. That's what God's grace does to us. Again, we can all change a little bit. We can all move and grow. But with the grace of God assisting our growth, we can grow farther. We can grow faster than we could in our own efforts. Now, I used to think electric bikes were cheating. I mean, I, I ride bikes for a hobby, and people would zoom past me on the trail, and I came real close several times to just hollering out, cheater! <laughs> but I held back. But then we got uh, an electric bike for my wife last year, and it's amazing. <laughs> it's a powder green, clearly girl's bike, and I have no problem going out on that thing because it's so fun. People look at me with a strange look, and I'm like, I don't care. This is fun. And what's been amazing, my, my big knock on electric bikes was, it's not exercise. But we got her, she wanted this, she only wanted a power assist bike, she didn't want the throttle thing, just power assist, pedal assist rather. And so what's happened is she's biking more than she ever has before. And she's getting in better shape than she was before. She's gaining strength in her legs and in her lungs, even though the power is assisting because she's getting out there and she's doing it more. This is kind of the effect that God's grace has on us. God's grace is not cheating because we need the help. So now when we fall into sin, what happens is we accept God's forgiveness because it's God's grace is there. And then we ask him for help, and we get back up, and we start pedaling again in the right direction. And we just keep doing this over and over and over again. And over time, we sin less, and we are changed. So for the next five Sundays, we're going to be looking at the five RE words that describe how God invites us to join in his grace. They're kind of the We'll call it the five pedal assist modes. The five ways that we can act and partner with God to bring about a change 
in us. Again, verse 4 of Romans 6 that we read, the end of it says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The key word in this verse is may. We may. We don't have to. It's our decision. We may live a new life. The decision is ours. It is not a complicated decision, but it is a big decision. Christians are people who have decided that they are not good enough and they're not smart enough to run their own lives. They need power. They need forgiveness, and they need power. They've concluded that Jesus is the only one who can forgive their past and the only one who can power change into the future. This is the biggest decision that any person can make. And like all decisions, it's marked by a ceremony, this ceremony of baptism. Now, why did Jesus command those who decide to follow him to be baptized? It's an odd ceremony. Nothing like it. I think baptism accomplishes two effects to the person who's decided to follow Jesus. The first is the clarity effect. It, it brings clarity. Baptism brings clarity to what the decision actually is. The last thing that Jesus would want is anyone to make a decision to follow him without understanding what they're, what they're getting into. And, and the way we are wired as people, we remember what we see and what we do more than what we hear or what we read. So baptism is a see and do statement that reminds us, everyone watching and especially the one being baptized, of what Jesus did and what they are now doing in deciding to follow him. You know, the the person who's being baptized, they get into the water, which reflects the death of Jesus, and then they're raised up out of the water, which reflects his resurrection. And it reflects also your decision to attach your life to the life of Jesus. You're accepting his offer to be raised with him, to be with him. It takes about five seconds, but it's about five seconds of clarity that is designed to be in the person's mind. This is what I've decided to do. I think the second reason is baptism requires courage. If you decide to follow Jesus, it's going to take courage. The reason is people always react to that decision. Some react good, some not so good. And increasingly, our culture is becoming like most cultures of the world, and that is it's increasingly not popular to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so if you decide to do this, it's going to take courage on your part. You're going to have to be willing to stand out and be misunderstood and maybe accused and ridiculed. So baptism is a public event of courage, Because in order to follow Jesus, you're going to need courage. Jesus himself warned his followers to not get to the point where they are ashamed of him. Where they just don't say anything about him because it's going to get awkward. It's a good warning. We all feel that temptation. We don't want to feel awkward. But if we're going to follow Jesus, sometimes we have to just feel awkward. And let's be honest, if you've seen baptism, baptism is awkward. It feels awkward. A crowd gathers to watch you get dunked in water. That's awkward. I mean, it would be way more convenient and way more comfortable if you could just go home, take a bath, call it baptism. (laughs) But you can't because that's not what Jesus says it is. 
when you get baptized, you are publicly and courageously saying, I'm doing this to obey Jesus. What this ceremony symbolizes is true of me. I am dying to my old way of life, and I'm being raised to a new way of life with Jesus. On the 22nd of, of May, we're going to have a baptism here. So if you've decided to attach your life to Jesus, if this is a decision that you have made or want to make, and you haven't been baptized, then baptism is your next step. Now, if your parents baptize you as an infant, that's fine. But that is not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a ceremony in which you are a deciding participant. Only you can obey Jesus and take this step. Your parents can't obey for you. So if you're interested in being baptized on the 22nd, if you have questions about that, let us know. On your connection card uh, or in the Seabreeze app on the connection card there, you can just check the box, contact me about baptism. And one of the pastors will get in touch with you and try to address any questions or help you get signed up for the baptism on the 22nd. If God is calling you to obey, there's many different hurdles that people have to go through. Go ahead and move through those hurdles and then obey him. Only Jesus has the power to change a life. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the death you died and the, the life that you were raised to. It's not just an event in history, but it's the epicenter of your grace that forgives our sins in the past and gives us power to change in the future. I pray for those who are on the edge of deciding, God, I pray that you'd help them get questions answered, overcome obstacles so that they can decide to be with you, to, to be raised with you, and then to be baptized as a statement of that commitment. We thank you for the power in the future. I pray you'd help us to get back on the bike and keep pedaling and watch you change us over time. We're grateful for your love for us and for your mercy and your grace in our life. And we pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.